Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were incredibly fortunate to be joined by Michelle Seitz, the chairman and CEO of Russell Investments, a leading global investment firm that ended 2021 with over $340 billion in assets under management and $1.2 trillion under advisement for clients in 32 countries. Her accomplishments have led her to be recognized as one of the most influential women in U.S. finance by Barron's and as one of the most powerful women in finance by the American banker multiple times. If that's not enough, Michelle is also dedicated to social impact, particularly empowering women in finance. She's co-chair of Challenge Seattle, a group of 21 CEOs from some of the largest companies in Washington committed to working together to address some of the biggest issues across the state, including chronic homelessness. And she's also a member of the Dean's Council for Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. And now, without further delay, we are so excited to bring you Michelle Seitz. Michelle, it is such an incredible honor to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you and where are you calling in from? I am great, Ross. I'm just very glad that there is such a thing as an integrity podcast, especially as it's directed at our industry. So I couldn't be more thrilled to be a part of it. And I am sitting in sunny Seattle, which is our headquarters, and it's going to be an absolutely beautiful weekend. This is the part that people don't know, that Seattle is the most beautiful place on the earth in the summertime. And so very excited to be joining you, but excited to be joining from the Pacific Northwest. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, And I'm jealous. Uh, In San Francisco right now, it's overcast three days a week. Although the weather band stays within 40 to 90 year round, which is wonderful, um, I could use some more sunshine. So maybe I'll have to come up and visit sometime soon. (laughs) You're welcome anytime. (laughs) Oh, thank you. We have limited time as the CEO of one of the largest financial firms in the world. I know how busy you are. and We're so grateful for you taking some time out of your day to be with us. So I want to dive right in. I know our listeners especially our student members, would love to hear about your career path right from the beginning. Can you give us an overview of your career journey and your story, including some of the detours you might have taken along the way and how you've become the CEO of one of the largest financial firms on earth? Well, I'm old, so that might take a while. (laughs) But I've been in the business now for 36 years. I actually... I guess I would say if y'all time myself, but you tell me where you want to double click. But going all the way back, I worked side by side with my entrepreneur, third generation entrepreneur father from the time that I was 12. And so my work ethic was formed very early on. And I marched in parades for my mother, who went on to become a county assessor after working very, very hard as a single mother when I was young. So I would say that certainly my career trajectory likely started in adolescence, both from a work ethic standpoint and seeing two of the most formative people in my life, my mother and my father, going down different paths, but being versions of the American success story and giving back to their communities and 
forming very deep relationships with people. So I would say from a values, kind of Midwest values is where I grew up, a small town in Indiana. But the course of my career and choosing to go into investments was set from a high school field trip. It was my advanced chemistry class that took a field trip to the Museum of Science and Industry. And my advanced chemistry teacher wanted to do a stop at the Chicago Board of Trade. So we hopped out of our yellow bus, went to the Chicago Board of Trade, and I was sold. So I loved the energy of the floor. I just loved it all and came back and decided that that's what I wanted to do for my career. And so went off into the Kelly School of Business and the rest is a bit of history. But I would say that as much as I was so grateful to be able to come into an industry, broadly speaking, financial services, but very specifically investments, I couldn't believe that I got paid to learn for a living. That was my first thought and for the first several years of my career. But now that I reflect back on it, the other thing that has just been amazing during the trajectory of my career is that you're able to give so much back to individual people, to society at large and at scale. But being responsible for other people's money was more crystallized for me as I went on in my career, which we can talk about that a little bit. But my first experience was at Nations Bank. So my first five years of investing in the business was number one during the first market crash that I experienced, which was October of 1987. And so I was maybe four months in to managing money and I had about $500 million under management. And that experience taught me very quickly that this is real money for real people that have real lives that are supported by these assets. And I'm very glad that I had that experience six months into my career because it made it a very serious and fiduciary-minded business for me. And I think that sometimes can get lost on generations that have bull markets as a tailwind for a long time. And they see it more as placing bets and making trades and gambling terms seep into the equation. And I think that this fiduciary role that we all have in finance is the furthest thing from that. And the quicker that people understand what the money is being used for and how critical it is in people's lives and society at large, the better off we all are. So I can certainly go back and talk about there have been lots of changes throughout my career, both as an investor when I started out and now 22 years as a CEO and five years at Russell. But tell me where you'd like to dive in a little bit. I have a ton of follow-up questions. A couple that I'll, I'll dive right into first. I'm curious along the way, what were some of the fears or some of the insecurities, some of the the ch- I don't want to say challenges because that feels like a very common question. I'll get there probably too, but I feel like so many leaders, they come off strong, confident, clear. And for a lot of young people and even people early midway through their, their career, there's sort of this false notion that you know the CEO and the leader is this impervious, perfect, confident, bold leader, and they were born that way. And I think that creates a bit of a false barrier to leadership for a lot of young people and even people midway through their career who could be fantastic leaders 
and have a real impact. When you were in college, beginning your career, what were, did you have any fears, any insecurities? Were there major challenges that you faced that you ever wondered if you could navigate? Tell us about some of the harder times in the early days of your career as you were growing. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and I have so many stories I could tell, but you're absolutely right. The end of the day, we're all human. And I think the quicker we all admit that <laughs> to each other, the better off we all are and open up some much more interesting conversations and we become a much more inclusive environment. But let me start off. So 1987, I had graduated from undergrad. IU is a great school, Indiana University, but it's not top of everyone's list to recruit from for Wall Street jobs. And so when I came on board, I was the only undergraduate working with a C of MBAs, the only IU grad working in a C of East Coast Ivy League people. <laughs> I was the only woman portfolio manager, and I was younger than anybody by a factor of 10 years. So there were all kinds of insecurities, perhaps, <laughs> that, that wow. I came to the table, but I didn't feel them. How do I phrase this? I felt them only from the standpoint that I needed to prove myself. And I felt them from the standpoint that I needed to work incredibly hard to earn my right to continue to be at the table. But I was very comfortable and confident. And I worked with wonderful people that made sure that they communicated to me in all kinds of ways that they wanted me to be there and they supported me. And so from that standpoint, I would say, and I've told often, I said it to the interns that we were hosting the other day in our in our Seattle offices, I, you're there for a reason, you're at the table for a reason, and you need to be part of the solution. So the more that you think about yourself, the more insecure and quiet and timid you might be, the more you think about solving a problem and the more you think about what you can add to the dialogue and the better questions you can ask to elevate the conversation is where I always found my voice. And I do believe that your voice flows with increased magnitude when you're speaking as a team and trying to solve a problem rather than worrying about was that a great question? How did I sound? What did I, what else can I say to sound smart? I mean, when you make it more about solving a problem with a great team of people and you feel included and less about you, the greater leader you are. And I think that's true of whatever seat you, you sit in. I went all the way back to the start of my career, but I would say that that's true even today. You know, I'm in civic roles with literally some of the most powerful leaders in the world. And if you're always intimidated when you walk in, you'll never add anything to the conversation. So instead, you need to be authentically you, be comfortable that you're there for a reason, and you have a point of view, and you have, you have experiences in life, and you have perspective that not everyone at the table has. And that's the power of a diverse team. And it's the power of, of leadership is to make sure you, you tap into that from everyone at the table. It's such an interesting point, Michelle, that I want to draw from that, which is 
if you don't focus on or worry about yourself and rather focus on the problem and solving it with the team, you will be more confident. You will have better contributions. And that was, it sounds like sort of always your operating model. It's interesting because I have a lot of students and even a lot of investors come to me and ask me for public speaking advice and how to get over their nerves. And that's the advice I offer. It's listen, public speaking anxiety comes from self-centric focus. It is you focused on how you will be perceived, worried about you. If you just focus on how you can offer the most value to the audience and to the people that you're speaking about, and it's all about them, that literally neurologically will help shut down your amygdala, like the fear center of the brain, and turn off that anxiety. And it will bring you back up into your your neocortex, your rational, logical mind, from which you'll most likely offer the most value anyways. Were there ever times or situations where you struggled to have that, where any sort of external circumstance sort of drove you inward? If not, what would you attribute that to? And if so, what did you do to sort of push back against that and and turn outward again to focus on the problem with the team? I was a psych minor too. Uh, So, you know, everything you just said is absolutely true. And it's part of the reason that I never have scripted speeches. I think first and foremost about the audience and how do I want to make them feel? Who are they? How are they coming into the conversation? What role do I have? Why are they listening to me? What are the most important points that I need to get across? And how can I connect in a way that has them remember the key points? So it's so much less about the content of what you're trying to get across and more about bringing inspiration, emotion, stories. Data is important too, but I think that I am going to come back to something that just crossed my mind. But I speak a lot and I'm very comfortable speaking now, but I can even after 36 years and keynote speeches and jumbo screens and you know, in the middle of Shanghai or or anywhere around the world, I can get very comfortable very quickly as long as I connect into the what is it they're learning and what is it I have to communicate. If I do script it out, if I do get nervous, if I do, I know the things that'll make me nervous and that's forgetting a word, right? It's the most ridiculous thing. So, I mean, I do agree with you that I think you just need to be your authentic self and remember what you're there for. The example I was going to use was when I was a portfolio manager, it's it's, so now go back, it was 1999, it was the dot-com bubble. I was then at William Blair. And I was growing my career and looking to land new clients. And I had the best new business year in 1999, where it was the single worst year for our relative performance in the history of the firm. So much so that we were actually concerned about our ongoing viability because we were a high quality growth shop and the dot-com bubble was anything but. And so... I did that by putting the pitch book away. I just talked about the environment, the rampant speculation, how we invested, what it is they wanted to do with the money, how could we make a difference to them, both institutional and high net worth investors alike. And I remember my mentor, who's still a very close friend today, Conrad Fisher, came in and he said, what in the world are you doing? 
to win all of these clients with the worst performance that we've ever posted in our lives. And I said, Conrad, I put the book away. And it wasn't (laughs) that I was hiding anything. I mean, everyone, of course, saw all of the numbers, but they completely understood why we were underperforming. They understood that we actually cared about cash flow that sustainable, durable businesses with revenue actually did matter in a normal economic environment. And so, you know, what was followed later that year was the bust of the dot-com bubble. It was 2000, 2001, where we had our best performance years ever. And I was asked to take over as CEO of the asset management business in 2001. So I do believe that you human connection can never be understated at any point in any field, (laughs) no matter how technical. And I think that's the core of confidence and authenticity is just remembering that. Michelle, that's so insightful. And I have a ton of follow-up questions and it actually segues into the next question I had on the agenda. First one thought to share, I just want to plus one that. I mean, our team, our executive team, we've actually been going back and forth recently debating how we do our feedback cycles internally. Do you have anonymous feedback during 360 season or do we have open direct feedback where you put your name to it? And the common arguments against open feedback is, well, if, if it's anonymous, people feel safe to share. And my pushback on that has been, well, no, we have to foster trust. And if we have open, transparent feedback, yeah, someone joining the team might feel nervous at first and just give a little piece of constructive feedback. But then when we as leaders respond with curiosity and humility and human connection, that will then reinforce that, wow, I can share what's ever on my mind, even with my manager. And I think that human connection, it fosters trust in a way that drives performance. And I think the role of the CEO over the last several decades has evolved a lot to be less about hard charging, driving results, and more about human connection and trust and authenticity. It's something that we see increasingly demanded by employees by our stakeholders. And I'm curious from your perspective, how has the role as having been a CEO for a couple of decades plus, how has the role of a CEO changed over the last 20 years? And how do you think it might continue to change? Well, that's a very great question. Let me bring it back to what you said, because I do understand the spirit in which you said it. And I I generally agree, but I, but I just want to Uh, bring it back a little bit. This CEOs are in charge of other people's money, right? For the most part, they are. Um, Whether you're a CEO of a consumer business, an industrial business, or a financial services firm, you know, you are taking shareholder money. Most of that money is invested with a desire to earn a return for a purpose of solving for a liability, whether that's your retirement or it's college tuition for your kids or it's something. So I think that every CEO has to remember that they are responsible for driving sustainable long-term growth and success of their overall organization. So there is absolutely no question that that's where all stakeholders are aligned, whether it's in a democracy or within a community or it's within a company. You do want inclusive, sustainable long-term responsible growth, right? And so you do have to you do have to drive for that bottom line. What you said specifically though was I will recharacterize as command control behavior. 
I think you you said something about hard charging. You know, you used a lot of testosterone laden words there. So I'll, I'll call it command control. Intentionally. <laughs> yeah. And so I would say from that standpoint, I mean, the you can appreciate that over, over time, I haven't made too many changes in my career, but I went from a, a very big, which is which is now looking back, been an absolute luxury from my learning perspective. But I've gone from a Fortune 500 Nations Bank, now Bank America company. I was at a startup entrepreneurial RIA. Then I was at a private partnership that was 100% employee-owned. Russell is a large independent financial services firm, investment solutions firm that I'm in partnership with private equity. I sit on the board of a biotech public company that is venture capital-backed. So I've had the benefit of seeing and being within many different types of stakeholder organizations, and you've needed different types of leadership styles for the trajectory of growth and where the company was headed and what the company needed. I would say that more than anything, adaptability is now required of leaders I think that historically, you know, I've I've been through lots of those psychometric evaluations and what companies might be looking for. And sometimes you do need command control, but you have to have the emotional maturity and the, how do I want to phrase this, the psychological uh, capability to tap into different types of styles, still being authentically you. But certain situations now now would be one of them. When markets are melting down, you're going through a bear market or a correction where you do people look to leadership. When you're in a crisis, you do need decisiveness, fast decision making. It can't be up to a committee. But what you're describing now is we've been through a very unusual period with multiple stakeholders, geopolitical instability. We've had COVID, we've had changing political and environmental forces at work. We've had many tumultuous events, supply chain issues, inflation right now. You've just had so many new issues coming at CEOs that I do believe this is probably the most complex period. And what I would say that the traits, at least in my mindset, they've been time tested, but I I absolutely believe that just raw raw intellectual bandwidth has always been table stakes, but being able to take that high clock speed and delivering to a multitude of stakeholders with a, a level of emotional maturity and connectedness to the human side of relationships and being to tap into, I would call it inspirational leadership and leadership by persuasion is as important today as it's ever been in the past. And I I do find it interesting that I think HBR and lots of other publications, the military, even my husband is a former Marine, came out and said that empathy is is now the number one leadership trait. And I believe that's true, but I, I, I just call that being human. And I think that perhaps we've been in environments over, uh, let's just say the ensuing couple of decades that just hasn't needed that to be front and center as much. And that's absolutely table stakes today. And being able to being able to tap into that in order to both connect the dots, break down silos, 
and get everyone very engaged and believe that they're heard, even if you don't agree with them, making sure that you understand their perspective and why they feel the way they do and what you can do to change that, even if you're not executing in the same manner that they believe it should be solved in, I think is a critically important uh, role for the CEO. Michelle, I hope that our listeners are feeling as moved as I am right now. And I don't say this to flatter you, but to try to practice vulnerability, which I've been told by mentors I need to do more, which I've never really done in a public sphere. When you were sharing that, I literally had one of my teammates come to mind who I was actually a bit sharp with this week, took a bit of a sharp tone with, and who I could have been more empathetic with and more persuasive with. And I actually just took an action item for myself to reach out to them immediately to check in with them and apologize, frankly, and, and make sure that they're feeling supported, valued, and appreciated. So uh, clearly off the, uh, the, the, the script of questions I wanted to ask, but I wanted to say thank you so much for that bit of advice for all of us. Well, Ross, we're all human. Uh, I, I have those moments, but I, I, do, I will say that you know when someone breaks out into an emotional, angry <laughs> diatribe, you know, it it might feel good in the moment. It takes a great deal of emotional maturity to not do those things, and I, I think I generally keep that in check. But, but of course, I mean, everyone has moments where they're where they're sharper or quicker or more transactional than they should be with colleagues. And I always view that to be my my signal that I need to focus on myself, both physically and mentally. I mean, we all get tired. We all have stressors. And knowing that is nine-tenths of the battle and then channeling that so that you can you can get everyone functioning at their best and highest use and their and their greatest potential is is just in, incredibly important as a leader. I appreciate you sharing that. As you and I have discussed, and a lot of our audience will know, my fiance was recently diagnosed with breast cancer, and it's been incredibly hard on us. There's a lot of fear, sadness, lots of hope, optimism, gratitude, love, and focus and determination. And that has been the primary advice I've heard personally is really take care of yourself these days. You're going to be exhausted. Back to your psych minor, your prefrontal cortex is going to be depleted trying to just get through the work week <laughs> and you know, be a CEO, be a leader. You need to get rest. And so I think so many of our students are early career professionals. They hear about the 100-hour weeks in investment banking that they're going to quote, sell their soul. And I think it's really powerful for them who are listening to hear from you how important it is to get rest and take care of yourself so you can be at your best and lead with empathy, authenticity, and the like. I think that pivots to a whole new topic that I wanted to dig into with you, which was developing relationships, culture, and purpose. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you develop culture in an organization internally and externally. How have you built and developed, for example, culture at Russell? And what are some of the goals or priorities related to culture that are on your mind right now? Yeah, well, I have been blessed with a foundational culture, which I self-selected for. So I, I do believe that no one person can change a culture and hopefully no one person can destroy it, right? I've been blessed with Russell that it's the firm is 86 years old and the cultural touchstones of the firm of non-negotiable integrity, valuing people, fostering a meritocracy, 
We played a win by exceeding client expectations. When I walked the hall for the first time in Seattle, I just loved that they had etched into the glass walls. We exceed, we strive to exceed client expectations. So the clients are the touchstone of the firm and how we execute what we do has been critically important from the day the firm opened its doors. And George Russell was the grandson of Frank Russell, who founded the firm. And so fortunately, cultures like that are built brick by brick over time. You can lose your way. And so I'll tell a story. And my story is that the first day on the job, almost exactly five years ago, the firm, uh, it was announced that I was joining the firm. And my first day was when it was announced. And so it was, I parachuted in and the small team of people at Russell who did know that I was coming on board were trying to help me by putting together a very dense pitch book <laughs> for a town hall presentation. And as you as you just heard me say, that's that's simply not my style. I had thoughts of what I wanted to say and how I wanted to describe myself, but they were trying to help me because it's a very analytical firm and the presentations tend to be very technical and content heavy and it's a lot of PowerPoints and bullet points. And I was doing just the opposite, which was maybe five words on a page <laughs> and a picture. And I was convinced, even though I didn't know everyone at the firm, that I needed to do it my way. And what I did is I went and pulled all the values of the firm that George Russell put in place close to probably 50 years ago. I put them on the screen and I talked about how I self-selected for the values of this firm and how my values were shaped over time. And I talked about being my father's daughter. I talked about my children. I talked about my family. And after that presentation, I, I just wanted them to know uh, why I chose them and how I would show who I was and how they could expect me to show up as a leader. And even before I did the strategic plan for the firm, I restated the values of the firm. I, I perhaps modernized them a bit. I updated them. But the core purpose of the firm, which is to provide people's financial security, is my core purpose of being in this career. And then the values and principles about what will guide us and how will we show up was very important. And the feedback I got after that meeting, one person came up and said that I had one foot out the door. I had accepted an offer at another firm and I changed my mind and decided to stay and see what might happen. Another person walked up and said, that's the first time I've seen a CEO put the values of the firm up on a slide and talk about them so intimately. And so it's not as though the other CEOs didn't walk the talk and care about the firm. I think that it just, you put them on a sheet, you put them on your website, and that might be the last time you talk about them. And trust me, I'm not as good as I should be about bringing these to life each and every day. You feel like you're a tape recorder, and sometimes it sounds more like an advertisement, but you, you do have to live those values and create a culture that people see that the million different little decisions you make every day really are the most important ones. Another story about that. But I think people watch. They watch how you 
talk about things. They they watch how you react in a crisis. They watch when you're short with someone and whether or not you came back to apologize. They watch if you lose your temper because you're in the middle of a crisis. They watch and they learn and they take their cues. So I think it's the most important job of a CEO to zoom out and just be very protective of the signals that they're sending, and especially in times of crisis. But I think most importantly, the little signals you send every single day. I think it was the Buddhists who said, how you do anything is how you do everything. One thing we talk about a lot at Scholars of Finance, and we're increasingly talking about these days, is we, we focus a lot on individual integrity, character, humility, compassion, courage, our core values, which is our mission. And a lot of our students have been asking, well, how do I apply my mission and values to my investing? And we oftentimes have conversations around impact investing, ESG, SRI, different topics. Um, and that segues into a question I, I wanted to ask. You know, Russell collaborates with many organizations to invest responsibly, is rated AA plus by the UN Principles of Responsible Investment for Responsible Investment Strategies. Could you provide more insight on how you drive the firm in their responsible and sustainable investment approach? while maintaining your purpose to deliver strong financial returns for your clients? Yeah, well, I think core to that question is, do those do environmental, social, and governance factors contribute to the success or failure of industries and firms? And so we believe they absolutely do. I think the most difficult thing right now is to figure out what factors have the best outcomes and have the most impact. And so the core of socially responsible investing is to drive to a better outcome. Whatever agreed upon outcome you've decided as a society, as a group, as a company, but as investors, we believe that ESG factors matter. That if it's an environmental risk, a social risk, or a governance risk, that it's an investment risk. The question really, and where this has become such a lightning rod in so many different ways, is how do you decide what's material and what's most impactful? How do you gather the information in real time? How do you evaluate if those actions are leading to the outcomes that you want? And how often do you measure it, right? And so this is core to the ongoing conversation, whether it's at Davos or it's in CEO forums or it's in ESG forums or it's, or it's in government. We're all trying to thread the needle as best we can. But for us, we take our cue from our clients. And so as we invest, our clients will tell us what liability they're trying to solve for, what outcome they need to achieve, and with what types of investments they're comfortable doing so. So our job is to be very clear of how we manage that along the risk return efficient frontier. But really, it's now three-dimensional because you have risk, you have return, and you have values. And as quickly as we can get to the point as an industry where we can do personalization for those values at scale, then I think we enable our clients to be the voice behind how they want to invest their dollars. And I ultimately believe that the people that own the money 
should be responsible for helping to drive that. But for us in our role, when we think about risks to a portfolio, we definitely believe that these risks over time are real and we track them, we measure them, we engage on them just like we would any other risk in a portfolio. That makes complete sense. And I'm excited in the years ahead for values-based investing, the mapping, as you talked about, of our values to our investment choices, theses, mandates evolves and becomes more accessible, more commonplace. And one, either within call it within ESG, if you will, the S component is something that we we think about a lot at Scholars of Finance. And in our first conversation, you and I discussed this, that we need more women in leadership in finance. I remember uh, when we initially reached out to you, you reached out to Terry List, one of your good friends, one of the members of our advisory board at Scholars of Finance to make sure this we were legit. <laughs> and um, thank you, Terry, if you're listening for vouching for us. Um, <laughs> we we had Terry on, Michelle, as one of our first ever podcast guests. And this was a, a central topic, was how you empower more women to become leaders in finance. As you know, only a quarter of leaders in financial services are women. We're proud that more than a third of our members at SOF are women, but we still aren't close to the 51% level we are targeting. What do you think are the biggest roadblocks facing women today trying to climb the ladder in finance and investing? And how can they overcome those? Yeah. So first of all, if it were simple, we would have solved it by now. And so all of us are trying lots of different things. And I do want to give a shout out to all of the men who are also instrumental to solving for this because that is the majority of the finance industry. And I would say my biggest supporters and by my strongest friendships, and now they're called sponsors, but I did not grow up in a world where that was a, a thing. Mentorship wasn't even a thing, but they absolutely were. If it weren't for those individuals, mostly men, if it weren't for those individuals over time, I am positive I would not have been able to achieve what I have within my own career or have learned as much as I have along the way. So I do believe this is a multifaceted issue. There's no one group that's responsible for it. We're all responsible for it. And I would say that's true of diversity at large. So, so what I would say, first of all, is number one, I'm thrilled that I do have very strong C-suite representation at Russell Investments. So my CIO, my chief investment officer, Kate L. Hillo, is a woman, which I'm thrilled about because that's pretty rare to have a woman CIO, let alone a woman CEO and a woman CIO running one of the world's largest advisory firms. But we also have a woman CHRO, a woman head of marketing, a woman head of our Asia PAC sales and client service teams. So I'm very excited about that. However, we've got to start in all facets. And so we've started uh, both in, in schools, right? And trying to make finance more interesting, trying to make sure that people, and I'm sure Terry talked about this, but I will say that the issue that I've had over time in colleges and when I speak in large forums with students is that women most often express to me that they're simply not interested in building models and working 100 hours a week and never seeing a client. And they view it as a numbers and technical standpoint. I would say this is probably one of the most purpose-driven fields you could absolutely ever be in. And there is, I think it's all about 
connecting with people. It's all about strategy. It's all about learning. It's all about communication. And not just in my CEO role, but as as an investor, that's where I excelled and still do today. You can excel as an investor in a lot of different technical capabilities, but you also excel by connecting the strategic dots and understanding management teams. So I actually think that that getting the word out early and making sure, of course, that people of all walks of life feel included, their voices are heard, that the environments change so that you can have the best of everyone that sits at the table. And then you also have to make the infrastructure more institutionalized. And so that's where groups like yours, we formed all kinds of groups But I do think that having resource groups that are co-ed, I think it's critically important to have reverse mentorships, both for my male colleagues, as well as for women to be mentored by men. We have it for our Black associate resource group. We have it for our women associate resource group. So I do believe that making sure that this isn't incumbent upon the women groups and women being mentors to women. I think that you absolutely should use that as part of the equation, but I think you need to have it from those in power and just have a more open dialogue. You talked a little bit about your 360 feedback. I think that's critical. The sooner we can have honest, open, candid dialogue about what works for different lives and lifestyles and where you are in your journey. I had a good friend of mine who's a very senior executive at a a very, I'll stop short of saying, but one of the the biggest public relations and advertising firms in the world. And she actually said that this more flexible environment for her would have led to such a a more impactful home lifestyle. She gutted it out, as did many of us, as we had had children, but now even I'm proudly rolling out benefits that will be equal for parental leave, whether you're a mother or a father. And so I just think that us being more open-minded and flexible about how people get their work done, and of course, you need to get it done with FaceTime, absolutely, Uh, but it also doesn't need to be 100% FaceTime. And I think that added level, as much as the catalyst was COVID, I do think that that will tap into so many more people that have lifestyles that need to adapt and be flexible, even Ross, for what you've just been through. If you can even imagine, if you still had to show up nine to nine every single day and got it out while you were going through something like that, it's just not healthy for anyone. And it's, it's not realistic to get an inclusive workforce that's dealing with different things at different times. So anyway, I just went off into flexibility, but I think the whole point is that to be adaptable, to be inclusive takes a lot of decisions by a lot of people. And I think showing role models is critically important, institutionalizing groups so you can have an inclusive environment, getting the pipeline filled, all of those things important but maintaining it so that you can really see people break through in their careers into, at least in this field, investing roles and C-suite roles, I think is incumbent upon all leaders, men and women, as well as bringing diverse teams together. And, And I think just making sure that you have flexibility and inclusivity 
at the top of your list and ask the questions about why. Why are you choosing to mm-hmm. opt out? Why aren't you coming on board? And listen to the answers and keep changing until we get the right recipe is important. Amazing. Michelle, you've answered all of my questions that I had for that topic segment. And so what I'd love to do, because we're we're running tight on time, and I know you're usually back to back every day, I would love to move into our rapid fire round, if that's okay with you. I will ask you three questions, rapid fire. Just give me a couple bullets of what immediately comes to mind. Sound good? Sounds good. Fabulous. First rapid fire question. What advice or key advice do you have for young people entering the finance industry who might be interested in becoming leaders one day themselves? Be endlessly curious and make sure that your connections are authentic and deep. Amazing. Second question. You've held many leadership and advisory positions outside of being CEO at Russell Investments. What advice would you offer all of us, regardless of our seniority, for allocating and prioritizing one's time? I think that you need clarity of mind to know what is most important, uh, number one, in your life, and number two, to move people in an organization forward. And as simple as that sounds, I think it is the least practiced muscle that any of us have. Amazing. Know your priorities. And our third question, Michelle, and this is a bit of a softball that we ask all of our guests and our episodes. You've been so generous with your time here at Scholars of Finance, right? Meeting with our team, uh, coaching me and the team. Here you are on our podcast, getting more involved in Scholars of Finance. What about Scholars of Finance um, was exciting to you? You know, Why take the time with us and why would you encourage others to get involved? It's self-evident, but it's all about values and integrity. And I think in finance, more than any other field, that can sometimes get confused that this is fiduciary field. It is all about solving some of the biggest societal issues out there. And so I just love that you exist. I love that you're starting with students. And this is a purpose-driven values-based business that's all about solving financial security for people. And so I adore that you're spending all of your time doing this and that you're spreading that word to a whole new future group of leaders, because that is core to what makes this industry and society better off. Michelle, I feel inspired hearing that. And frankly, the next time I'm asked to do a public talk about SOF, I might give you a call to see if you can go and do it and do the pitch for me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's necessary. You are a fantastic (laughs) leader of this organization. You're too kind, Michelle. And that means so much coming from you, truly. Um, Michelle, thank you for your time today. Thank you for all your investment in our mission and for joining us today on the Investing in Integrity podcast. Would love to have you back on at some point. I have so many more questions I'm sure our audience would love for us to dig into. And in the meantime, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you very much, Ross. And best wishes to your fiance. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, Please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.